Father, thank you for this day, for being here with us. Open your word to our hearts that we may understand it. Thank you so much for this opportunity to study in Christ's name. Amen. Um, hopefully you found the video last week interesting and informative. Um, um, probably, or I'll tell you what, if you do a Google search on Justin Peters, he's a pastor at Vicksburg, Mississippi, you can get the video for yourself if you want to. Um, it's I only showed you the first part of three. He has a whole video on the whole healing issue, and he has another one on the supposed trips to heaven. Um, of course, if you go in those circles, they got guys that have gone to heaven and back and can tell you all about heaven. Um, No, I'm talking about these charismatic guys who, not charismatic, but word of faith who um, had a trip to heaven and have come back and, you know, God gave them a tour of heaven and another guy's got a tour of hell and on and on and on. Um, Paul went to heaven and he wasn't allowed to talk about it, but I guess these guys are. So, uh, and, and it's interesting to find out what, what they say about heaven and what the Bible says about heaven is a little bit different. So you got to wonder where they're getting their information. But anyways, um, there's three parts, three videos in the series. Um, so it's well worth it if you can get it. Um, I don't think it's that expensive. You know, he's not out to make a lot of money on it. So, um, yeah. Probably not on iTunes, no. Yeah, this is Justin Peters from Vicksburg, Mississippi. Anyways, today, um, this is the last session on... Pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Next week we'll be starting the doctrine of the Bible. We'll find out where the Bible came from, how we got it, um, and uh, all those good things. That, that's a very fascinating class for a lot of people. We'll talk about Bible versions. Um, you know, what version of the Bible do you use and where the versions came from? And it, it'll be a pretty interesting class, I think. So that'll be starting next week. So let's look at the gift of tongues. We started this uh, week before last. And uh, I'm just going to work on through the remaining slides in our series, in our handouts here. What is tongues? When we talk about tongues, there's a lot of different definitions of it, depending on who you're talking to. But in the Bible, and we're going to use the biblical definition and compare it to what you be, you're being told, tongues is a supernatural ability to speak a previously foreign unknown foreign language. The one thing to emphasize and stress throughout this entire discussion is that it is a foreign language. It is not babble. It is not noise. It is a foreign language. It has syntax, it has grammar, and people can understand it. Um, and if you want to find um, where, that, where we get that, let's look at Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Um, a lot of charismatics go here to try and prove that everybody should speak in tongues. <clears throat> but in Acts, and uh, you'll have to forgive me because I'm old now and I can't see my Bible. And um, yeah, Joanne Keyser stole my other one that has bigger handwriting in it. Um, she didn't steal it. I left it out there, and she picked it up and put it in her office. So I gotta, I gotta go ransom it. Confiscated, right? Yeah, she confiscated it. Um, 
let's look at uh, let's look at the Acts chapter two verse one. We'll pick it up there. It says, uh, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, what did Christ promise would happen after he ascended? He would send the Holy Spirit. And what did he tell the disciples to do? Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. So, what are they doing? They're waiting. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Other tongues there, the word there is glossé. G-L-O-S-S-A, glossé. That is a language. Throughout the Bible, that is language. Okay? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So why were they there in Jerusalem? Pentecost. Yeah, it was a feast day. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So the sound of the mighty rushing wind was something that caused all of them to come together, these devout Jews from all over the place. They came, and as they were gathered together, what did each one of them hear in his own language? The message of the gospel. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not, all these, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? They were shocked because Galileans were the, you know, the hicks of those days. They were the throwbacks. They were the ones up in the hills. They were the uneducated mob. They were the, they were the heartland of the U.S. kind of people here. They, they, they were not educated at the universities. And they were looked down on. And these guys are saying, man, you know, what happened here? All of these Galileans, who we all know are uneducated to start out with, they're speaking in our own language, in our own native tongue. And what are the languages? Well, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Serene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages mighty works of God. Whenever you see tongues in the New Testament, it's always a language. It is not... Babel. It is not Babel. It is a language. And because it's a language, what can, it be, what can you do with it? Interpret it and understand it. Now, you may not understand it personally if you don't know that, but someone else may who, know, who, is that, you know, who, who whose language that is will be able to understand what is being said. And they were talking about the mighty works of God. Yeah. Um, the thing is, some people who are defending at all costs the, the tongues gift uh, say things like but how do you know that I'm not speaking a, a, a language and one answer is I don't know French but I know the sound of it I don't know the <laughs> but I know the sound of it Hebrew etc there is a certain cadence there's a certain syntax there's a certain uh, modality by which real language is uttered that clues me in that it is a language versus I'm also equally as well clued in to just 
a bunch of syllables, a yeah. bunch of phonemes <clears throat> together. And that's an important concept to understand because when there there have been um, philologists that have taken ta you know what a philologist is <laughs> a language person okay someone who knows languages philologists have taken tapes and recordings of people speaking in tongues they've tried to find syntax and word order in that and they say there this is not language this is gook this is just babble this is just noise there's no discernible language now people say well it's the tongues of angels kind of stuff well, well here, here's the here's the issue here's something here's a very important concept does God want you to know what he is telling you yes, yes or no yes. if God wants you to know what he is telling you why would he tell you in some language that you can't figure out what he's telling you you know they have these own private prayer language kinds of things what good is that for you do you know what you're saying is there any edification to you? is there any help to you is there any no God wants you to know. And that's one of the things Paul will make very clear in 1 Corinthians 14. I'd rather speak five words in a language I understand than 10,000 in a language I do not. It is not a measure of spirituality. It is babble. Doesn't Paul say, um, and I can't remember where it is, I'm sorry, off the top of my head, um, that you know, basically tongues is for the edifying and glorifying of God. And if nobody understands them, then you might as well, you know. That's right. If there's no one there to understand it or interpret what is being said, Paul says, shut up. You're only edifying yourself. Yeah. And even then you're not edifying yourself because you don't know what you're saying. All right? You don't know what you're saying. I could, I could take, a, you know, somebody who could write out German and I could probably pronounce it and speak it. And I have no idea what I'm saying. I have no idea what I'm saying. It's, it's funny, my uh, nephew took a little bit of Japanese, which is sort of dangerous, but uh, he wrote out a, um, Marshall's wife is Japanese, one of the guys that works with Donna on Wednesday night, and Donna wanted to be able to say hi to them in, in Japanese or something like that, so my nephew wrote it out, and he missed uh, one syllable or something, and Donna wound up calling the lady a bathroom. <laughs> And the lady busted out laughing, and Donna couldn't figure out what was happening. And she said, oh, well, it's the wrong word. It's not hello, it's bathroom, or something like that, you know. Now, Donna was speaking up, but she was saying the wrong thing. She had no idea what she was saying, and you wind up calling the lady a bathroom, um, or a toilet, or whatever it was. You've got to watch that, all right? The, the point that, that, that the New Testament makes is that whenever you see languages, tongues, whatever, these are known languages with syntax. They can be interpreted. People can understand them. And usually there were people there that understood what was being said. They were not just noise. It was not just confusion. Um, Acts 2.6 and 2.8, the word used for language and tongue is dialectos. We get dialect from that. We know what a dialect is. You've got the New Jersey dialect. And then you've got the down south dialect and all that you know we know those we can follow those I probably did bad on that but I just got back from the south so I'm learning my southern talk it seems like in those types of churches so there's always someone there and how do you know what they're saying is true and that's the question how do you know what they're saying is true you don't and this is the thing here's the thing you understand God wants his word validated now in the early church it was validated by people who were there and understood what was being said if somebody gets up and speaks some gobbledygook and somebody else comes up and says, well, he's saying blah, 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 how do you know that? How do you know that? You don't. You don't. And you've got to understand something about Satan. Satan wants to fool you, doesn't he? 
And what you need to understand is when you look back historically at this whole thing of this, you had uh, not not far from Corinth, here's the town of Delphi. And in Delphi, it was the center of the mystery religions. And one of the things you did in Delphi is you would go in and you'd go into this smoke-filled like room and there would be an oracle sitting there and you'd ask her some question about life and the meaning of the universe or whatever and she'd babble off something and then a priest would tell you, well, she said yada, yada, yada and you just went with it. Well, that's the kind of stuff that was leaking into the Corinthian church. The more out of control, and this is the other thing, remember we said this, the more out of control someone is, the less filled with the spirit they are because God does not make you do bizarre behavior. God is not making you do bizarre things. He's not making you act like an animal, growl like a lion, and bark like a dog, and all that other kind of stuff. When you see that happening in the New Testament, that's demon possession. That's not the Holy Spirit. And when God speaks, He wants to speak. God wants to communicate in a language that people can understand, because it doesn't do Him any good to speak in a language they don't, because they're not going to get what is being said. This is all language. Throughout the New Testament, glossae, the word for language is always a known language. It is never just noise. Now, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14, which is there's really the spiritual gift chapters, 1 Corinthians 12:10 mentions language and the interpretation of languages. These are spiritual gifts. Now, in some way do we have these today? in a non-miraculous form. Language and interpretation of language. Yeah, Wycliffe Bible translators, right? People who learn languages and, and be able to go into a, you know, somewhere where they have no written language and give them a written language and then give them a Bible and a New Testament in their own language. We have that today, but you get it by studying. You don't get it by getting a divine zap. If you did, you could close down all the foreign language schools and all the missionary societies, right? And just let them get the gift. The same passage also mentions various kinds of languages. How many kinds of Babel are there? Is, is, can you differentiate Babel from Babel? No, Babel is Babel, right? Babel is Babel. You can't differentiate Babel from Babel because it's all Babel. But you can differentiate a language, right? There's, there's different languages, but Babel and noises and just sounds coming out of your mouth. Babel is Babel. All right? So there can't be differences of Babel. There can be differences of languages. And 1 Corinthians 14.21 states that tongues was a sign to unbelieving. Well, this is part of why God gave signs. This goes back to the Old Testament where God basically told Israel, he said, because you did not listen to me in a language you can understand, I'm going to talk to you in a language you can't understand. He was talking in reference to the Chaldeans coming in and taking Israel off into captivity. It was a sign to unbelieving Israel. And God made sure that his word was spoken in languages that everybody could understand so the gospel could be taken back to all of the different countries from whence they came, right? In Pentecost, when these people went back to their own country, what did they take with them? The good news. In fact, we find a church in Rome that was established probably from Jews that were there at Pentecost. And all over the Roman Empire, there were these 
churches that were formed because people heard the word of God in their own language. Babel is Babel, tongues is a language. Now, when you talk about tongues, one of the things you find is in many charismatic circles, this is like the primo primary gift. You know, if you don't have this one, you're not it. And uh, in fact, in some cases, they even tell you that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not even saved. You're not even a Christian. All right? Yeah. Now, here's, here's, the, here's a theological discussion of this whole concept here. Number one, when you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 31, let's do that. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 31. And um, this is the list of, of languages or of, of different gifts. Probably help if I looked at the right chapter. It's kind of hard to see in my old age. No. I'm getting LASIK done. Hopefully that will help me see. Yeah. Yeah, get rid of these Coke bottles. Yeah. All right. I deserve that. And God has appointed in the church. Well, let's look at verse 27. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, he just got done talking with talking about the metaphor of the body of Christ. And he says, just as your body has different pieces, parts to it, and each part does its own thing in order to give you life and to give you health and to help you do what you do, even so the body of Christ has many different parts. There are some parts that are more honorable and some that are dishonorable, right? We cover up our dishonorable parts, don't we? Yeah, we definitely want to cover those up. But do, they, do you need them? Yes, or you're dead, all right? And, and Paul is saying, in the body of Christ, there are some that are more prominent, others that are not, but all people, all members of the body of Christ, are necessary for the functioning, the healthful functioning of the body of Christ. And he says here, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church, first, apostles. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, okay, let's look at these spiritual gifts. And he actually gives a little bit of order to them. So what is the first most prominent gift in the early New Testament church? Well, apostles. What did the apostles do? We talked about that. Yeah, and early on they were the disciples who founded the churches. Now, were the apostles still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians? Sure. 1 Corinthians was written about A.D. 51, and except for James, all the apostles were probably still alive, the disciples, the original 12. So they were there. Second, prophets. Who's the prophet? The preachers. So, if you want to look at an order in the church, you've got apostles... Then you've got prophets. Then what do you have third? Teachers. Then miracles, gifts of healings, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues, various kinds of languages. So he says in the church, if you look at the most prominent to the least prominent, you start out with the apostle and you work your way down the tongues. And then he asks a question. Are all apostles, are all prophets are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with languages, do all interpret? What's the rhetorical answer to that question? No. no. 
So even, even this passage here disputes the concept that everybody should speak in tongues because it's saying not everybody speaks in tongues any more than everybody is an apostle or everybody is a prophet or everybody is a teacher. Yeah. The, the defense that the defenders of tongues gives relative to that verse is, okay, not everybody has the gift of tongues or interpretation thereof, but everybody will speak in tongues as evidence of having received the Holy Spirit, even though they may not have the ongoing gift thereafter. That's okay. Yeah, in response to that, you have to ask them, Okay, what is the normative pattern for speaking in tongues? Alright, because in Acts 2, what did they do? What did Christ tell them to do? Wait. Wait. So do you tarry? What happened in the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8? When did they get the gift of tongues? Peter laid hands on them and they spoke in tongues. What about Cornelius? When did he get tongues? When did he speak in tongues? Acts 10, when he believed. How about the guys over in Acts chapter 19, the Old Testament saints? When did they speak in tongues? When they believed. So which one's normal? There is no normal pattern. Okay? There is no normal pattern. And here's the other thing in response to that. And You know, we could spend weeks on this topic here. I'm trying to stuff it into a week, so I'm sorry. But we could spend weeks on this. But another response to that is, when you look at the New Testament, tongues is, tongues, the gift of tongues is mentioned in two books. What two books are they? Acts and Corinthians. Other than that, they're not mentioned. Okay? Acts is history. What is history? Church history. What does the history tell you? What happened? What happened? Does it tell you what should happen? No, historical narrative in the Bible does not tell you what should happen. It tells you, here's the facts. Here's what happened in history. Acts is an historical book. You do not form, we're going to talk about this in the Doctrine of the Bible, you do not form theology on historical narrative. Historical narrative tells you what happened. If you form theology on historical narrative, we all should have multiple wives because that's what David had, right? And that's what Solomon had, which made him so wise, right? That's a joke. All right. No, you don't form theology on historical narrative. You form theology on the teaching portions of Scripture. Historical narrative tells you what happened, and it may be what, what's good or what's bad. <laughs> it just tells you what happened. All right. So if you go to Corinthians, Paul's going to tell you about tongues here, and when you study tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, it is clear that not everybody should be doing it. He tells you right there. So when somebody wants to make that argument, they have no scriptural basis for it. There's no biblical basis for it. And here's the other thing, too. There's a lot of the New Testament written after 1 Corinthians. In fact, we have Paul's pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. What is 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus? What is the reason for Paul writing them? Does anybody know? Why did Paul write the pastoral epistles? Right. The key verse in Titus chapter 1, or 1 first, first Tim, Timothy, not Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy, is 1 Timothy, I think, 3.15. Paul says, I write these things so that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul wrote 1 Timothy specifically to tell Timothy how to manage things in the church. And guess what 1 Timothy says nothing about? Tongues. 
So if tongues was such a prominent, necessary, needful, important concept, why did Paul not mention it at all? Not, and it's not mentioned in the general epistles. Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation, not mentioned. Romans doesn't mention it at all. A theological book written about A.D. 55, Paul doesn't mention that at all. When somebody wants to make this argument, folks, they're making it based on no evidence at all. There's no theological, biblical basis for making that statement. And I, I often say this, you can believe the moon is made out of green cheese. It doesn't mean that it is. You have no basis for believing that. So don't let them back you into a corner by somehow saying, well, prove to me that it's not. The question is, prove to me that it is. And there's no evidence in the scripture that can tongues, and we're going to talk about this, tongues was a continuing gift. Was it a gift in the early church in Corinthians? Absolutely. But there's no evidence that went farther beyond that. And in fact, if you look at church history itself, none of the early church fathers talk about it. Who are they? They're the ones that were discipled by the apostles. They don't mention it. They're not talking about tongues. It's not mentioned at all. There's no evidence that this was a problem. And here, here's the thing. When tongues, first, when tongues did pop up in the 2nd century A.D., it popped up with a heretical movement that denied many of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, like the deity of Christ. Sounds a little bit like the word faith boys, right? So don't let anybody back you into that corner. You don't need to do that. They, you know. And when you look at 1 Corinthians 14.3... Paul is making a statement said, I'd rather prophesy than speak in tongues because when I'm prophesying, I'm edifying everybody. When I speak in tongues and nobody's there to understand it, who do I edify? Nobody, or most myself, but nobody. Does it do you any good to go to China and speak in a church in English if everybody speaks Chinese? No, it doesn't do them any good at all. They don't know what you're saying. You can be telling them the truth of the Word of God. They have no concept. They just look at you with a blank stare. And that's what Paul's trying to make here. Tongues is a, is, is, is a language that people can understand. It was there for a purpose, a reason, and is not a measure of spirituality. Because here's the thing Paul says here, um, verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 12, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you to you a still more excellent way. And then he talks in, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and don't have love, I am like what? Noise. 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 Paul's basically saying, what is the motivation for exercising any spiritual gift, specifically tongues? Love. And what is love? Love is to benefit somebody else, not yourself. That's the motivation. That is the, that is the engine that should drive your spiritual gift. Do you love other people? Are you doing it to minister to them? And that's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 13. You can speak with any tongue on the, in the world, in heaven and earth, and if you don't have love, it's noise. It's racket. It's a cacophony of sounds that makes no sense. And one of the interesting things there in verse 31, it says, but earnestly desire the higher or the best gifts. Yeah, the greater gifts, the best gifts. Um, in the Greek language, there are different verb forms, okay? And different verb forms, it tells you what, what the action of the verb is, what the mood of the verb is. If you all remember your grammar from grade school, and you, you know, I hated grammar in grade school. 
But if you remember your grammar in grade school, you have different tenses and verbs, moods and all of that, and, and whether it's a past or a present or a future, you know, whether it's a passive or active, I hit the ball, the ball hit me, whatever. There's, there's a word, verb form that spelled the same but have two different meanings. One of them is an imperative. What's an imperative? Command, do this, do that. Another one is a statement of fact. All right. The word form, verb form here could be translated either, but you are seeking the best gift, i.e. you are seeking tongues, which is the best gift, or it's saying, seek the best gift as a command. Now, what would the context probably mean? He's a command. It's the imperative. Seek the best gift. And what is the best gift? Love. And if you follow on down through when you get to 14, what is the best gift that Paul is talking about? Prophecy or tongues? Prophecy. Prophecy. I mean, even within the context, if you, if you study the context, and I wish I had three or four weeks to just take you through this verse by verse, but if you study the context of this passage, it's clear that Paul is telling them tongues is not the most prominent gift. In fact, it is probably the least prominent. If you want a prominent gift, seek for prophecy because then you're edifying everybody. Not just yourself or not just a few. That's the most important thing. And it needs to be motivated by love, not some selfish motivation of pride and arrogance. And that's what you see a lot of times in the, the people who speak in tongues. It's an issue of pride, of arrogance. I speak in tongues, you don't. You're not spiritual. Like I am. And unfortunately, usually the most ungodly ones are the ones that are doing the most tongue speaking. The ones that are living the most ungodly lifestyles. I've got to hurry through this. We'll never get through this stuff. The procedure for tongues in the church according to 1 Corinthians 14 I'm going to, this is boiled down, it's, an, it's encapsulated, boiling down. If you want to believe in tongues as valid, if they are a valid gift for the day, then there's a procedure for doing it, and Paul talks about it. Number one, two or three at the most. Not everybody. Now, what do you have in most charismatic churches? Yeah. Everybody. All right? Everybody's yabbering. Mm-hmm. Except you. Right, me and my husband sitting there. Well, you guys are the unspiritual ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he, he said, everybody stop, everybody stop. You, you can't uh, do the Holy Spirit. No, 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 you don't. You don't. See, the, the, the problem is it's so silly and stupid when you think about it. It's almost like, how do you even respond to somebody with that kind of silliness? You know, I would have too. But but the see, here's the thing: Does the Holy Spirit make you do bizarre behavior? No, no. never. Did Christ have people do bizarre things? No. That's not the way it works. was basically doing the same thing, I and mean, he didn't tell him to start or stop, but he would not stop saying that the spirits come, spirits come until he thought everybody was up at the, I'm sorry, up at the pulpit speaking in tongues. He just kept going and kept going and kept going. It would have been a long night for you all, wouldn't it? They would have, we're not leaving till these two speak in tongues, you know, you'd still be there. I was 
I yeah. Yeah, you don't need to be there. Yeah. But Paul says, at the most, two or three people. At the most, not the whole congregation. And then it said, each one was to speak what? In turn. Not everybody spoke at the same time. Why? Because you had to have somebody there to do what? Interpret. Because what might you have in that congregation? Someone who didn't know. I mean, I, I had a situation like this. At John MacArthur's church, they had a man from Russia who's the head of the Russian Baptist Union preach. And you know how he preached? He preached in Russian and then somebody did what? Interpreted, Interpreted it. Now, if he had just spoken Russian, there would have been a few people in the congregation who have been really blessed and most people would have been bored out of their skull. <laughs> but you had to have one speak and one interpret. interpret. And that's what Paul's saying. If you have tongues in the church, one gets to do it at a time, and then somebody must interpret. And what was forbidden? Oh, yeah, go to the average charismatic church, and what do you have? Chaos. God is not the author of confusion. He's the author of order. This is so good that you just made the analogy of someone like the Russian-speaking Yeah. But here's the other thing. If that sermon was being recorded, someone who knew Russian would understand what the Russian guy was saying. Right? And the same thing, if the tongues is valid and somebody gets up and they're speaking in Cantonese or whatever, and someone's interpreting, I could take a recording of that, give it to a Chinese person, they can understand what was being said. Alright? It's a language. That's, folks understand it's language. I can't beat that home bad enough. It is language. And it's recorded. If, if there's no one there that I can say, there's someone else that knows what is being said. It's not noise. And, and Paul is saying, we have one at a time, in order, someone interpret, no confusion, nobody speaking all at once, and number five really kills it. <laughs> Women are forbidden to speak in tongues. Thirty-four, thirty-five. First Corinthians fourteen, thirty-four through thirty-five. All right. All the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands and home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. In the context of what? Tongues. Tongues. Women are not allowed to speak in tongues. They're not. They should not speak in church. Yep. What's the context of the passage? All right. Remember, what's the three most important things in understanding Scripture? All right, you got it. What's the context here? Now, there's another passage, I, I believe, and I'm going to get in trouble when we do ecclesiology, that I do not think there should be women preachers. That does not mean women can't talk in church. I'm talking about pastor. 
That's different. It's a different issue. That's not the context here. The context here is in the church. Alright? In the order of the church, God made it very clear that whenever someone is speaking the word of God, someone should understand it, what's being said. Or they're not to talk at all. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No, that's fine. I'm miss, I think I'm missing the context here. Uh, I'm looking at the, the 34 and 35. 34 says women should be silent. The 35 makes it sound like the, <laughs> that it, it's more women are asking their husbands questions during the service. Both. Because, you know, I've read several commentaries, you know, on this one, and they all say that it was about women asking questions. You know, they were both. so much promotion. Now, what does he mean? What does he mean? Because for the first time, women and men were allowed to be in service yeah. together. It is both. I think in this context it's both. Because okay. the context of the passage is tongues. Paul does not jump the context. Alright, that's one of the most important things we're going to find. We did this, you're going to love, you're going to really enjoy the doctrine of the Bible in that. Because you understand that context is the most important driver to understanding Scripture. If you blow the context, you can wind up anywhere on the map. So, All right. My other question would be, why in this instance is this one of the um, gifts that women are not allowed to have? I mean, if women, if, if gifts are applied to all Christians... Are they? Well, okay, I kind of thought they were. <laughs> are they? Well, I mean, not all, I mean, like, you know, not everybody has every gift. Here, here's a question. Yeah, the gift of apostleship, was that given to women? I'm going to get in trouble here, I know it. <laughs> Because most, there's mostly women in here. Don't mug me at the end of the class, please. <laughs> is the gift of apostleship, was that given to women? No. No, it has nothing to do with second class citizens. It has nothing to do with that. Get, get rid of that. That's feminism. Get rid of that. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing, yeah, it has nothing, to, do, it has nothing to do with the culture. It has nothing to do with that. We, got, we, we want to make it culture. It has nothing to do with that in the Bible. What did, how did Christ treat women? He elevated them far beyond what the society did. All right, he he did that. So 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 you know culturally, say well you know the culture didn't let them, but we can do it today. You got to be careful going there. When you look at the Old Testament, you didn't have women prophets. There was no continuing office of a woman prophet. Exceptions, not the rule. Deborah was an exception. All right, but she was a judge. She wasn't a prophet. All right, there were exceptions. Not they were they were rare exceptions. You did not have the continuing office of a prophet. In the New Testament, you didn't have women disciples. Right? You didn't have women apostles. And I can make the argument you didn't have women elders in the church. But did women play an important part in the church? Yeah. Absolutely, they did. All right. So, I'm going to, that's a way a deeper topic for another session. We're going to get there. Don't worry. So, you can sharpen your knives and claws or whatever for that. You know, we'll, we'll get there. All right. But in the early church, I think it's very clear that that it, when the church came together to worship, when it came together for the word of God to be preached and proclaimed, who did that? Men or women? Men did. And that was the order. Okay, in the early church. Now, were there women that discipled men? Apollos and 
Apollos was discipled by who? Yeah, they, they, so, so one-on-one, things like, yeah, absolutely. But I'm talking about when the church came together as a whole, when somebody was there to proclaim the, or to preach, to teach the word of God, the men were to teach. They were the elders. What about uh, Phoebe and Chloe? Phoebe and Chloe were servants in the church, but it did not say that they were pastors. No, it didn't. Yeah, but they they were, and that's the important thing. Women had, and this is the thing to understand, you know, before you get all hot and bothered, women had a very, very important role in the early church. And in fact, here, and let me let me throw this out. One of the most important roles they had in the early church was to teach younger women. And what what's what's missing in our churches today? Totally, almost that. That's missing. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching and doing all I agree. Yeah. I agree. But 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 women are to teach other women. I mean that that's a very important thing. That that's a necessary part of the church. You know. Um, I I used to teach the singles class and I had a guy giving me a hard time because I wasn't more friendly with all the women in the class. You know there was a reason I wasn't. I just don't need that. You know, and I and I, I I was a stick in the mud, not very friendly, and all of that. And this is the same guy that divorced his wife and married somebody else. So I mean, I was there to teach, not to fraternize. Now that doesn't mean I'm you know rude or anything like that. It's just I have to keep a boundary line. But women need other women. Younger women need other women to help them. All right, and we don't have that in churches today. You know, we don't have that, like what it says in Titus chapter 2, where it says, I tell the older women to teach the younger women. We need that. that that's a necessary component. We're getting off on a little trail here, but, you know, the, the, yeah. I think we can boil it down to what's going on in the world and in the churches. We're, we're all out of our roles. Yeah. And if you follow God's ordained roles, things work out, and they work best. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and by the way, you got to understand. I, I, I like what Sammy said. It was his fault. When did the human race? When were their eyes open? No. When were their eyes open? When who ate? Yeah, it wasn't when Eve ate, right? It was when Adam ate. Eve was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. So we blame all the women for the fall, but really it was the man who did it. Yeah, so. Right. Now here's a question. we got to hurry here. We'll never get through this stuff. Have tongues ceased? That's the question. Have tongues ceased? Well, as I said last or a couple weeks ago, I'm not a 90, I'm not a 100% cessationist, which says nowhere anywhere in the world could God ever do tongues. I'm not going to say that because God can do what He really wants to do. He doesn't need my permission. But I'm saying it is not normal. It's not a normative part of every church service in the world. And why is that? Well, no mention of tongues exists after the first century, except in heretical movements. And I'm talking about movements that denied the deity of Christ and things like that. There were tongues in that, but there's no mention. The early church fathers, you look at all of the early church fathers, they don't talk about tongues and the use of tongues. It's just not there. 
It's only mentioned in 1 Corinthians and Acts. And Acts is history. We talked about it. It's not doctrine. It's not, it just tells you what happened. Also, tongues is always a known language. It's not babble. It's not gook. It's not noise. It's a language. And here's the thing. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says tongues will cease. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13.8. That's an important passage to understand. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says this. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they shall pass away. As for tongues, they shall cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, to understand that verse, you need to delve into the Greek grammar. Okay? And in Greek grammar, a verb has a different action. Remember, your active, passive? What's an active verb? You do something to something. I hit the ball. That's active, right? The object of the sentence does something on the predicate of the sentence. Okay? What's passive? Yeah, the ball hit me. All right? In Greek, there's a third action. It's middle. It's called middle. And we had to interpret, I hit myself with the ball. It's a reflexive action. Okay? So there's active, I hit the ball. There's passive, the ball hit me. There's middle, I hit myself with the ball. All right? It's action directed back onto itself, onto the object. Okay? When you look at the Greek text here, okay, the first one here where it says prophecies will, or the first one here where it says um, prophecies, they will pass away. The word there is active, which means something is going to cause the prophecies to pass away. Something external to prophecy itself will cause it to pass away. What is prophecy? Preaching. Preaching. So someday preaching is going to be done away with. And then it says, the third one, it also says knowledge will pass away. Again, active. What does it mean? Something is going to cause knowledge to pass away. But tongues, it's middle, tongues will cease in and of themselves. They will just stop by themselves. Something won't suppress the tongues, won't make it stop. They'll just stop all by themselves. Do you understand what's going on here? Yeah, he said they will be still. Yeah, the idea is they will stop of themselves. Okay? Now, what is going to cause prophecy um, and knowledge to not be needed? Eternal state. Right? In heaven, do you need some, do we, are we going to attend church in heaven? No. Do we need preachers in heaven? No. Because no. why? We will know it, right? We will, it will be a reality. Now, here's the thing that Paul is saying, and this is the beauty of it. He's saying love never fails. Alright? Why does love never fail? What makes love more important than anything else? It's an eternal thing. It's an eternal concept. In fact, at the end here, it says, So now abide, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Faith, hope, and love. What's faith? What's faith good for? Belief in something But someday it's going to be? Proven. Proven. I'll see it. What's hope? Not, not that hope, but what is hope? I'm waiting for something to happen, right? 
But in heaven, it's happened, right? So I don't need hope in heaven. I don't need faith in heaven. But what will I need in heaven? What is eternal? Love. Love is the motivation of all of this. And what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 13.8, what the grammar is saying, is tongues will cease in and of themselves. They will stop. Something is going to stop prophecies and something is going to stop knowledge. And that's going to be when we all see and know all things in heaven. But tongues will cease in and of themselves. And did they? Historically, yes, they did. They were not operative in the later part of the early church. They were operative early on. But once you get past about A.D. 55, there is no mention anywhere in the New Testament of tongues. They're just not there. And if Paul was so intent in telling Timothy how to manage the church in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, he would have talked about tongues. He didn't. They're not there. Yeah. Um, all of my life, I've been exposed widely, broadly, deeply to tongues-oriented uh, uh, you know, churches and what have you and heard it over and over and over. There's only, however, been one, count them, one person who spoke in tongues that I knew it to be, I actually knew it to be Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the person actually interpreted and the interpretation that the person gave uh, involved in one instance my husband and myself and the interpretation was a prophecy where the prediction was that he would undergo uh, surgery that had to do with his heart further the prediction had to do with him undergoing surgery with one of his legs and there would be a grave problem with the leg and X number of months later, it's been 1994 when I, or no, 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 1992. So I forget how many months now, but it was uh, less than a year later where he indeed had a heart attack. He indeed also uh, had to have one of his legs amputated, nothing to do with the heart, but to do with uh, the Mm -hmm. diabetic situation. And uh, I know that to have been a one and only example in my personal experience where I know that the tongues, because before any of the, if the prophecy happened, I mean, the, the result of it happened, uh, I just knew from the cadence, from the syntax, from the sound, mm-hmm. and the little bit of understanding of Hebrew that I, I knew it to be Hebrew. Mm-hmm. So. When you said, thank the Lord, you said you're not a cessationist, you're not saying it absolutely doesn't exist, period, Mm-mm. but it's rare, then I... I yeah, it's very rare. It's very rare. Right. It's not normative. Right. And not everybody should be doing it. Right. Let's look at um, modern tongues of critique real quickly here. When you look at modern tongues, what they do is they emphasize experience, not doctrine. Again and again and again, they say it doesn't matter what the doctrine is, I've had an experience. Now, is that good? No, that's very bad. You can have pizza and beer and have an experience, but it may not be a doctrinal one. All right? You've got to watch that. It does not emphasize interpretation. It just emphasizes the noise. It's dominated by women. Modern tongues is dominated, for the most part, in most charismatic churches, by women. 
It misinterprets the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is God placing you into the body of Christ that is not getting the gift of tongues. All right, I wish I had time to fully develop that. I don't right yet. It elevates tongues to the most desired gift, and Paul says it's probably the least desired one. It emphasizes emotion, not intellect. It's not you thinking, it's you emoting, and that's always dangerous. God did not tell Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, come now, let us emote together. He said, let us reason together. It emphasizes the Holy Spirit, not Christ. Very important. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? To point men to Christ, right? It is not to magnify himself. The Spirit is not to magnify himself. The Spirit points men to Christ. Christ points men to the Father. The Spirit never emphasizes himself in any ministry. That's not the purpose. That's not his purpose. Quickly, the interpretation of tongues is the ability to understand a previously known language. You may not speak it, but all of a sudden you understand what is being said. And the Greek word here is ermenuo. It means to interpret a language. That's what the word is, to interpret. And the entire context, when you look at 1 Corinthians 14, 4 through 11, Paul's talking about interpreting a language, not interpreting Babel. People understand what the language is, and it can, they can understand it. Let's look at the gift of healing real quickly. Um, again, I wish I had more time on this, but we'll, we'll make do with what we have. It's the ability to supernaturally and instantaneously heal organic diseases. The most important word there is organic. It's not lower back pain. It's not migraine. It's organic disease. When Christ healed people, what did he heal them of? Blind. Organic diseases. The guy's been blind all his life. Malchus had an ear put back on. All right? These were organic, verifiable diseases. These were not lower back pain, migraine, headaches, whatever. These were organic diseases. And in many cases, it involved restoration of limbs. Like the man with the withered hand. Withered hand. Or in Mark, it talks about they brought to him, when, when it was talking about Christ's healing, brought to him people who were maimed. And the Greek word for maimed there means people with missing limbs. Can you imagine going to Christ and getting an arm back or a leg back? Or an eye put back in? I mean, that's what Christ did. That's the miracles. That's the healing in the New Testament. It's not this kind of rigmarole you see on TV today. What are the characteristics of biblical healing? When you look at all the biblical healing and how it's done, what is the characteristics of it? Number one, it's done by a word or a touch. Christ gave the word, right, and disease fled. Or sometimes he touched somebody and they were healed immediately. All right? It was instantaneous. There's none of these progressive healing kind of things. I remember talking to somebody who said, yeah, I want God healed. And I said, well, you still look, uh, well, you know, I'm, on my, I'm in process. No, there's no, in the New Testament, there's no such thing as a process healing, except one, one exception. What was that? The man with the mud on his eyes. And there's a theological reason that Christ did that. We don't have time to develop it. But there's a reason he did it in that instance. But what could have Christ done? Instantaneously. Alright? It's total. It was a total healing. It was not a partial healing. It was a total, complete, instantaneous healing. Somebody who couldn't walk now is walking, carrying their bed. Someone who couldn't see now sees perfectly. Alright? It was done to everyone regardless of their faith. This is the interesting thing. 
nowhere in the New Testament did the healing depend on the faith of the person getting healed. Now, in some cases it did, right? That's your blood, her faith. But in most cases it didn't. How about the guy at the gate, beautiful? Remember when Peter and John showed up at the gate and he was looking for alms? And was he looking for healing? Did he have faith that he was going to get up and walk? He was looking for a handout. He had no faith at all. And he was healed. Possibly. Not yeah. Disease, but, um, well, God, it's God's will that you pray for unsaved people. That's God's will. Paul prayed for them all the time. It's God's will that we. It depend on the, on the right. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's done regardless of their faith. And God healed. Listen, organic disease, not psychosomatic stuff, not not unverifiable things. We're. Again, you look at the healings in the New Testament. These were organic diseases that these people had. Missing limbs, eyes that couldn't see, they couldn't hear, they couldn't walk, they couldn't do things. He healed them all. And it included, this is important, included the raising of the dead. Christ was able to raise Lazarus. Remember, Peter did the same thing. All right? This is all, when you look at New Testament healing, this is the characteristic of the New Testament gift of healing. Alright? Now let's compare it to today. What do you see on TV today? A show. Alright? It's not done with a word or touch. Usually. And it's not instantaneous. In many cases it isn't instantaneous. Now, you know, they, they have a little bit of a show going on sometimes where it looks like it's instantaneous but you go back to that person a week later and they're back in the same boat they've been in. And for temporary, temporarily you can overcome certain pain, right? And think you're healed but then the next day it's back. That's not the way it was in the Bible. When you were healed, you were healed totally, completely. It's not a total healing. You don't see any of that today. In fact, here's the thing. People have studied this. They've, they've studied healings from all the different faith healers and there's not one single verifiable organic healing period there isn't any there's none we're talking about organic healing now some people say well I you know my, God healed me of my cancer well there's a certain percentage of people who have cancer go into remission right that does not necessarily mean God healed that person at a faith service it's not for everyone. In fact, it's told today, if you're not healed, it's because you don't have faith. Where's that in the Bible? It's not there. It's made up. See, that lets them off the hook. See, if they can't heal you, it's not their fault. It's your fault. You don't have faith. And for the most part, they can heal organic diseases. You don't see people without arms coming in and walking out of a Benny Hinn meeting with an arm put back on. It's just not there. Okay? And here's the other thing, none of them are able to raise the dead. Now they say they raised somebody from the dead or hear something about that, but there's not, nobody raising from the dead. Here's the point, if these guys had the gift of healing, if the true biblical New Testament gift of healing, they could walk down to any hospital and empty it. 
And they wouldn't need a show, they wouldn't need an offering, they wouldn't need any of that to pull it off. They could just walk in, touch a person in the bed, and that person would get up and walk out. Perfectly healed. That's how Christ would have healed them, right? And that's how he did it. He healed them. Completely. Totally. And there was no... They, they didn't have any relapses. It was total healing. Yeah, and see, here's the thing, and, and this is important. Let's stop and think. Let's take a little five-minute detour. Can Satan cause disease? Absolutely. Where do you get that? Job. And another one. There's another example. Christ. The woman bent double, remember? He said, whom Satan hath bound. All right? So, can, so if Satan can cause disease, what else can Satan do to a limited... He can remove it, right? Now, does Satan care what you believe as long as you don't believe the truth? No, he doesn't care what you believe. He really doesn't care. He doesn't care whether you're a Mormon, he doesn't care whether you're a Baptist, a Buddhist, Hindu. He doesn't care what you are. He doesn't care what you believe at all as long as you don't believe that Jesus is Christ, as long as you don't believe the Gospel. He doesn't care what you are. So if he can heal you, supposedly, and make you think you're in what you're really not, that's fine by him. If Satan can cause disease, Satan can do limited healing. He can do that. And again, Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as you don't believe the truth. He doesn't care. And that's what you find happening, I think, in the charismatic circles. You've got a lot of deception going on. Somebody says, I speak in tongues, therefore I'm going to heaven. No, not necessarily. The people back in the ancient city of Delphi spoke in tongues. Are they in heaven? No. I got healed at a, at a Benny Hinn crusade or whatever. I'm a Christian. I know I am. Is that true, necessarily? How many people did Christ heal? That are, I Stop and think about it. The people that Christ healed, how many of them do you think are in heaven? Probably not many. Yeah, he healed ten guys. Remember the ten lepers? Who came back? One. And Christ told him, this is interesting, Christ told him, your faith has saved you. Now I think I think not healed saved. Ten were healed one was saved. Just because you got healed by God doesn't mean you're automatically in as a Christian. And yet that's what many people think today. It's deception folks. It's deception on a massive scale. There's a book written by Richard Mayhew called Biblical Healing that's helpful in this. You might want to get it. Richard Mayhew wrote the book. It's a, it's a short little read. It's a good one. Let's look at another temporary serving gift. We're getting out of the end here. Miracles. What is miracles? Miracles in the New Testament means powers. And usually it refers to powers, acts of power, specifically power over demons, demonic forces. All right? Um, the actual word translated miracles is dunamis. It means power, power over demons. Now, in the New Testament church, did they have this gift? Sure. Power over demons. Did Paul have it? Yeah. All right. And in fact, Christ gave it to the disciples because there's a lot of demonic activity. Okay? And the New Testament usage is in connection with power over demonic forces. Power over demons. Power over demon possession. Now, this is the important thing to understand. In a lot of the charismatic circles, they have this idea that you can order demons around. Remember the whole spiritual warfare kind of thing? 
We'll talk about that later. A lot of that is made up stuff. Do you have power over a demon in and of yourself? No. No, you don't. But do you know it's a demon? If something happens, do you know there's a demon behind it? No. No, you don't. You know, one of the things, Frank Peretti, remember the book, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness was written and causes craze in spiritual warfare? Where he had territorial demons and he had demons over houses and demons over buildings and demons over blocks and towns. And you had people marching through town praying down the demon of that was oppressing a city and all this kind of stuff. Do you know any of that's true? Is it, do we have any information that that's true? Well, there may be a hierarchy, but do you know what's going on? Do you know what Satan is up to? Does anybody here know what Satan's plans are? Other than generally. The point here is this, folks. It is interesting. When you look at spiritual warfare in the Bible, nowhere did Paul ever tell us to go on the offensive against Satan. What did he tell us to do? Defend. Defend. Stand firm. Be ready. Did Paul acknowledge the existence of Satan? And did Paul acknowledge that Satan... Um, was hindering the gospel. Yes. yes, he did. Did he know specifically how Satan was doing that? No. no. And what did Paul focus on? God. And that's what we need to do. Don't, don't focus on, don't be scratching or trying to think, how is Satan oppressing me this week? You may not know. You don't have the ability to know. But what can you know? What can you do? You can pray and trust God to give you strength and direction. And let God deal with Satan, because see, God knows what Satan is up to. You don't. And look at the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, there's nothing in the New Testament that tells me to go on the offensive against Satan. It tells me to defend, to stand firm, to be ready, to put on the whole armor of God. Nowhere does it tell me, go figure out what Satan is up to, go pray down territorial spirits. There's none of that stuff. And then this idea of a prayer shield, you know, where somehow you pray a prayer shield or a hedge. Is that anywhere in the Bible where I pray a hedge? No. Now, did Job have a hedge around him? But did he know it was there? No. Who put it there? God. And who took it away? God. There, there's no, you know, there's Christians, they say, well, if you pray this magical prayer, it's like putting the shields up on the Starship Enterprise. You know, you get the shields up and the devil can't get to you. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. There's no prayer shield that, that, that somehow magically keeps Satan off of us. It's not there. I'm just going to get to that. That's the other thing, binding Satan. You hear about, well, we're going to bind, I'm going to bind Satan. All right, let me ask you a question. In the New Testament, is there any statement where it talks about binding Satan? Where? And who does it? Michael the archangel does it, and God gives him the power to do that. Is there anything in the New Testament that tells us to bind Satan? No. And they say, well, what about, what, 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 what about, what about Matthew 12, where it talks about binding the strong man? Well, Christ is making an illustration there. Go read Matthew 12 after class. Christ is making an illustration. And what is happening in Matthew 12? Well, the Pharisees have accused Christ of doing his miracles by the power of Satan, right? And Christ is saying that is a ridiculous statement. All right? Because, number one, a house divided against itself won't stand. Satan is not going to cast out Satan. 
And number two, he says, let me ask you a question. If you're going to go and rob a guy, and he's stronger than you, what do you have to do first? Tie him up. So if I am going to go and spoil Satan's kingdom, what do I have to be able to do? Tie him up, which implies I am stronger than him. That's the point. Christ is making a point. The point Christ is making is that I am stronger than Satan because I am able to bind Satan because I am able to spoil his kingdom. There's no command there. There's no indication that I bind Satan or somehow I'm going to say, oh, I bind Satan. He's not allowed in this room. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. You can pray that God would... And let God worry about it. But there's no, nothing. I bind thee, Satan. You know, you hear these guys on TV. I'm binding the devil. You don't bind the devil. And the problem here, this is the thing you understand, folks. The devil is so much more powerful than any one of us. He could squash us like a bug. We don't understand just how powerful he is. And if God did not keep him off of us, we would be dead. Yeah, in fact, that's, in fact, here's the thing. In the disciples' prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Deliver us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let God worry about the devil. Let God know what the devil's up to. You're not going to figure it out. He's too powerful. He's too deceptive. He can... He can sneaking by you and you don't even know what's going on. God will take care of Satan. Don't worry about binding Satan. Let's finish it up here. Five minutes. Spiritual gifts. This is the whole thing here. Finding your spiritual gift. How do you find your spiritual gift? Well, number one, realize you have one. Right? All of you have a spiritual gift and identify it. How do you identify it? Well, what would you like to do? What would you like to do? That's probably what your gift is. Again, God's not going to gift you to do something you absolutely hate to do. And if you don't know that, well, try different things. You know, try this, try that, and find something that you really enjoy doing. You just look forward to doing it every, every Sunday or whatever. That's probably your spiritual gift. Um, I'm just curious. You said that God would never give you something that you don't like to do. There are certain things that he does, but when it that we may not like to do, but when we do it, we find joy in doing it. That's the thing about spiritual gifts. Yeah, what do you enjoy doing? What do you like to do? What do you want to do? And then exercise your gift. Don't if you have a spiritual gift of teaching, find a place to use it and go for it. Don't just sit around. If you have the gift of showing helps, go visit, do things. If you have the gift of mercy, go visit people in the hospital. Uh, you'll enjoy doing it. And develop it. This is the other thing. Just because you have the spiritual gift doesn't mean you can't develop it and get better at it. Right? I'm a better teacher today than I was 15 years ago. I hope I am. Because I've practiced it. Alright? Practice it. Practice. Don't sit on it. Alright? Some dangers to avoid, not using your gift. Don't, don't sit on the sidelines. If you have a spiritual gift, use it. Don't be like the servant in, Acts 9, or in Luke 19 that sat on the talent. Go for it. And don't exercise someone else's gift. Do yours, right? We talked about this.
And don't let somebody put you on a guilt trip telling you what you should be doing. You find out what you should be doing and do it. Don't let them make you feel guilty. I like that last one there. I use that with missionaries. Now, if you're not going through the jungle eating tarantula soup to take gospel to the natives, you're not in the will of God. Don't, don't go down there. Some people, they would love doing that. Not me. Your gift should be used, be enjoyable to exercise, and be effective in the lives of others. And then finally, just do it. Go for it. All right, well, next week we're going to start the doctrine of the Bible. So that's where we're going to be. Father, thank you for this day and for being here with us. And thank you for helping us to get through the material. And help us to remember very strongly what we've learned here in spiritual gifts. And I pray that all of us in here would find our gift, exercise it for your honor and glory. Thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen.